Hi, I'm Allison Burrell, and here at the Radiation Research Society meeting. I'm here with Andrew, Jake, and Chris. Uh, would you guys like to introduce yourselves and tell me what uh, university you're from? Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Tomei, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. Great. My name is Jake Perkinen. I'm a graduate student at Laurentian University, also in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. I'm Andrew Zarnke. I'm also a graduate student at Laurentian University. And you, you guys are all in the same laboratory? Yes. Sir. Yes. Okay. So the reason that we're here today is because your laboratory is not the same as, uh, or not the typical laboratory. Where is it located exactly? So our laboratory is located down in a, an active mine within mm -hmm. Sudbury, in a, a laboratory that was designed originally for astroparticle research, and now we're starting to start up a biological research program in the lab. Okay, and how far down in the mine is it? It's uh, 6,800 feet or two kilometers beneath the surface of the planet. Wow. How long does it take to get down there? <laughs> I mean, these pretty fast elevators? Yeah. Well, you have to drive. Um, so we leave our university and it takes about 30 minutes to get to the active mine site and then you go to the surface of the, the mine site and you get into your mining gear. Then you walk over to the mine shaft station and you get in the elevator, they call it the cage. cage. At, um, either just they go down at 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. So you get there a little early and then you get in the cage and it's pretty dark and noisy and you drop down two kilometers and then you have to walk uh, about a kilometer and a half down a, a, a mine drift to get just to the front door of the snow lab facility. And then you enter the snow lab facility, you have to remove your mine clothing, go through decontamination shower, and then put on snow lab gear because the laboratory itself is a class 2000 clean room. So it takes, I'd say almost an hour and a half to two hours to just get into the lab itself. Wow, that's commitment right there. <laughs> um, and then you said they only go down at two times, so do they only leave also, or can you leave at any time? No, it's the same thing. There's only a couple of times in the day that you can leave the lab, so, and you need to make sure you get there in time to get on the cage, otherwise you're stuck waiting for a couple hours till the next one. Wow. Yeah, they don't wait for snow lab <laughs> workers, for sure. So because it's an active, an active. copper nickel mining site, you have lots of miners doing active mining work, and they have very specific time schedules that they're going to different places in the active mine and doing work. So we kind of get to piggyback on their ride up or ride down. So you don't get a lot of leeway there. But this cage, how many people does it fit? When it's full, you can get about 40 or 50 people. Oh, okay. And it's pretty tight. And it has two decks. So there's an upper and lower deck. So you can get quite a few people packed in there. I always say it's kind of like being a sardine maybe because you're standing shoulder to shoulder and face to face and you all pack in there and then uh, go down. Wow. Um, okay, one more question about the lab itself um, and its location. So you're going down into the mine and, and you stay there for about eight hours or so and um, there's no sunlight. <laughs> so do you, are there special like UV uh, lights down there or like do you ever feel really sad after working <laughs> for a whole day or a couple of days in there? I'm just curious. They don't have any special lighting down no. there, but it is especially during the winter when you get down there when it's still dark outside and then when you get back up, it's, it's dark again at night. So 
Um, it is a weird feeling to you to be underground and, and really not have the opportunity to even look out a window for the mm-hmm. entire day. There are times it's, you don't, after you've been down there a while, it's something that sometimes you don't think about and then you go back to our surface laboratory and work for a few days and you realize you're staring out a window at a tree <laughs> and it's this really wonderful thing. But it's, uh, it's kind of just your basic fluorescent laboratory lighting. Okay. So you don't get to, to go up to the surface for lunch or? No. no. Everything you, so when you go down in the morning, basically everything that you're going to use or need that day for your science or meals, for example, you take down with you. So you take it underground and everything you bring, so everything from your lunch in your lunchbox to any equipment that you might be bringing down with you has to go through a decontamination process as well. They call it the car wash. And because when you walk through the mine, it picks up things like mine dust, they actively clean every single thing that enters the laboratory. So you have to clean all of those things. So this sounds like a really big process, right? So why does the lab need to be down there? What does Snow Lab stand for? So Snow Lab is the Submarine Neutrino Observatory, and it was originally built for particle research. And so the reason that they're building it underground is for looking at neutrinos, which are very weakly interacting. And if you built detectors on the surface, all the other forms of cosmic radiation are going to obscure that signal. So by building those labs deep underground, that two, two kilometers of rock will shield out virtually all other forms of cosmic radiation. The neutrinos can pass through it and they can then detect them underground. So they've done a lot of experiments looking at uh, the different types of neutrinos, and they just recently won the Nobel Prize for discovering that neutrinos have mass and can change flavor when they're traveling from the sun to Earth. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, and what does your lab specialize in? What, what kind of research are you guys working on now? So we work with Dr. Douglas Borum, who's a... Uh, the Division Head of Medical Research Sciences at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, and his career has mainly been focused in low-dose radiation work, diagnostically relevant imaging, levels of ionizing radiation, and the biological effects. And so something that you sometimes don't think about necessarily is that when you run any experiment of the surface of the planet, a low-dose experiment or a high-dose experiment, or any experiment in general, it's being done in the presence of natural background radiation, which is always has been present and it's very ubiquitous and it, and it pervades the entire planet. So we started to, when we realized this space was down there that they had built where you can get away from the galactic cosmic radiation, what potentially could be the biological effects of going into an environment that's actually below natural background radiation. So your experiments are looking at ultra low dose radiation exposure. That's the term that I think it's a it's a field with not a lot of data and not a lot of people, if not simply because of the lack of access to facilities that can accommodate this type of need. Mm-hmm. You can't go underground most places and do this kind of work. And it's difficult to shield in such a way at the surface for these ionizing natural background radiations that is actually the equivalent or analogous to being able to go underground. So it presents an opportunity to be able to ask those questions. The two kilometers of of rock is equivalent to about six kilometers of water shielding. So if doing any kind of an experiment on the surface, it really is impossible to get that same level of uh, reduction in in background cosmic rays. Okay. Um, 
So what are some of the projects that you're working on currently? Um, well, right now I'm working on developing a new assay for measuring DNA damage. And there's lots of different assays for measuring damage. And it's we're hoping to be able to detect differences in how well cells adapted to this environment can repair DNA mm -hmm. and kind of to like draw connections between like primordial mechanisms for genomic stability and uh, so that's kind of the part of this that's kind of really kind of cool is that like Jake said we've evolved from the beginning of life in this presence right so we're hoping that some of these differences that we're hoping to detect are going to be these changes in primordial mechanisms from for genomic stability. Well, that's really interesting. Actually, my uh, my specialty is gamma H2AX. So, is that something that you are looking at, or what other types of assays are you using? Uh, or you said you're creating one, or yeah. So I'm kind of modifying, modifying. an old, older version of a. Um, it's called the FADU assay. So it uses um, DNA winding in alkaline conditions um, to detect um, different types of strand breaks and. Um, it's kind of analogous to the Comet assay, so I'm using that as kind of a comparison in my troubleshooting process. Mm -hmm. um, but for sure, Gamma H2X, that's something Doug has used in his lab for years, uh, Micronucleus assay. So these are all things that we want to kind of get a whole picture of. They kind of all have different sensitivities and detect different types of damage. Um, and the repair side of it is the part that I'm hoping that we can detect some differences. Uh, between adapted cells and, and non-adapted cells. So are you guys using cells or do you have um, do you have whole animals that you can do research like mice or? So our first initial experiment was over the last year that mm -hmm. we've just established our project. We've started a project underground called the Repair Project which is an acronym that stands for researching the effects of the presence and absence of ionizing radiation. And so Perfect. <laughs> we, it's funny because every project underground at the Snow Lab facility has an acronym. And that was one of the biggest challenges comically was it took us months and months to come up with a good acronym for our project. You should just come to DC, everything's in acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> so we, our initial experiment underground was we took Lake Whitefish embryos and we took them underground and mm. studied their embryonic development and a lot of work that had been done in Dr. Borum's lab previously as well as that Chris did for his PhD involved looking at low dose uh, thermal and radiological stressors on lake whitefish development and we're able to elucidate stimulatory effects and effects that can change based on these low dose exposures and so based on some of those data we wanted to take these embryos underground and see if you go into the absence of that ionizing radiation environment that's present at the surface, do you also see a biological effect? Is it positive? Is it negative? We were unsure. Have you seen any results yet? Um, we're just right now going through the data and getting okay. some preliminary results. Um, we're also, so a couple of the issues with the laboratory being underground too is that we eliminate all the cosmic radiation, but because of the surrounding rock, you do have some levels of um, some gamma rays from radioactive decay in the rock. And the radon levels are pretty high underground as well. So they have a pretty good air filtration system that reduces that, but the levels are still a little bit higher underground for radon compared to on the surface. 
So we're right now working on developing some incubation systems that can use um, controlled air from gas cylinders that we can reduce the radon levels to get it below background. So a lot of the preliminary data we have is just from um, figuring out, because no one's actually done any biology down in this lab. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to just figure out if you could actually bring a living organism underground and have it survive for an extended period of time, yeah. um, which we were able to do that with the, with the embryos. So that was kind of the first step. And now we're really working on getting the levels of radiation down as low as possible to then see if there is a difference in the radiation environment. Yeah. So what's the name of this fish again that, that you guys are using? The lake white fish, it's Corrigalinus clupiaformis. Okay. Um, I, I haven't heard of that one, but I know zebrafish is used a lot. Is that a model that you might consider since there's so much research done with that? So the reason we've done the, the lake whitefish uh -huh. is that they're, we're, we're doing embryonic development, which, right. is, which is really easy to raise. So the problem with a lot of animal models is that if they're, if they're high maintenance or need specific environments, they're, they're not really going to be able to, to be grown underground. Okay. So um, we've done embryonic development in lake whitefish, and they have a really extended development period oh. of up to about six or seven months. And so something like a zebrafish, which really? development is only a couple of days, yeah. if we're looking at subtle changes in background radiation environments, we may not see that over the couple day period, but we may see it if we're looking at development over several months. That's really interesting. I didn't realize there was such a drastic difference in development between yeah. different species of fish. And in the cellular and molecular endpoints in tissue culture or any other model system that we look at, mm -hmm. the idea is that these are likely not to be immediate changes, that you really need a chronic or protracted exposure to this environment to pot potentially elucidate any biological changes that you might see. So like Chris said, for something like a zebrafish, which has a very quick uh, developmental turnaround, uh, the like whitefish embryo is in that environment for its entire development as opposed to, and then compared to at the surface where all else being equal eventually, once we resolve those other radiological contaminants, that we will be able to say these were in the absence of all of those natural background radiations mm -hmm. and underground, they're not, and is there a difference? So we have seen, uh, based on our preliminary data that we're going through right now, we do see a difference in the embryos that were grown underground versus at the surface in terms of their body length and their body weight. However, we can't necessarily not attribute that to the stimulus of the increased radon concentration or even something like, let's say, pressure because pressure is slightly higher underground. And so those are factors that we need to sort of figure out. But for our first year underground proof of concept, can you, can you do biological research 7,000 feet underground Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so these fish normally swim at uh, a much shallower level, so they're not used to this increased pressure. No. Um, the pressure levels underground are actually probably pretty comparable to what it would be at the bottom of a lake mm -hmm. where they're incubating. So the, the pressure increase in pressure underground is probably not, not a bad thing. And if anything, it's closer to what they would naturally be. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of research actually going on in space, right? They're, they're doing on the, the space station and everything. I think it would be really interesting to have, uh, you know, you're doing this research in the absence of external radiation, uh, background radiation, and in space there's its increase because you're outside of the, the atmosphere. It would be really interesting to see, um, I don't know, the same um, species being looked at in in contrast. I think really that that's almost the 
the big dream if you yeah. could design the perfect experiment it would be to take them into that mm -hmm. that unshielded uh high energy particle uh space relevant ion environment on let's say the international space station mm -hmm. at the surface and underground in the absence and compare all three in the same model system and i know they do some cellular work and molecular right. work on the iss but to my knowledge no one's ever their control is always at the surface. They've never repeated those experiments mm -hmm. in the absence or the shielding of the natural background radiation environment. So I think personally that would be the coolest it experiment that you would able to, to observe all those biological effects. Well, I wonder if there is a way to recreate the space environment on the surface, just like you're sort of recreating, or not recreating, but creating a, an, the absence of background uh, on Earth, if there is a way to do that. Uh, well, I mean, they do space-relevant ion work on the surface of particle accelerators. Mm -hmm. and there's the NASA Space Radiation Research Laboratory, and there's Brookhaven, and there are places where they do a lot of that work in different model systems, animals, tissue culture, but... Well, like, one real... Oh, sorry. No, no, please, because I just realized the question I'm going to ask is going to take more than two minutes to discuss, so... I was just going to bring up that, like, the opportunity of just working in Snow Lab is amazing because they have such a wealth of knowledge, and just their background in doing experiments underground in this type of environment. So, like, just, like, we're developing, like, a special environment uh, glove box for ourselves to live... Uh, grow in mm -hmm. so it's being able to use their engineers and the physicists and doing dosimetry under there uh, that's a real benefit and so so all of this new research um, in this laboratory that's so far underground it, you know is this the first time that anyone has done this it's not the first deep underground biological laboratory there is actually uh, several around the world, and by several, I'd say maybe on the scale of a dozen mm -hmm. laboratories that are underground where they have done some kind of biological research. Snow Lab is the second deepest underground laboratory in the world. The next deepest underground laboratory, which is in China, does exclusively astroparticle physics. So to our knowledge, this is the deepest that anyone's ever gone to do biological research. Mm -hmm. But there is some data that have come out of work that's been there, and they're relatively simplistic models and endpoints, but they've taken, let's say, tissue cultures or yeast systems or, or basic microbial growth and looked at basic endpoints like growth curves, their duplication time, their doubling time, and they've seen that in these shielded environments that you get attenuation of growth, you get increased uh, DNA damage when uh, stressed with a DNA stressor, and they see increase in uh, reactive oxygen species scavenging, and there's so little work that's been done in these underground environments that so much of the molecular mechanisms driving those changes that they're observing are still largely unknown. They've also taken, uh, there was a group that took Deinococcus radiodurans, which is an enormously radio-resistant organism, and they took it underground and they grew it, and they also saw attenuation of growth in that organism. So to me, that was very curious. Why would you have an ultimately very radiation-resistant organism, and you take away a little bit of natural background radiation stimuli, and it, for more or less, biologically does worse at looking at that endpoint. And I know they've also taken that up to the International Space Station, so it's it's interesting. I, I don't know if we're completely sure in this, this world of underground, ultra-low, sub-natural background radiation biology what's driving these effects, but there are some biological effects that have been observed. 
Um, and now, is are there any, um, I guess, endpoints that you're looking at that are clinically relevant? Or is this all just basic research trying to understand what would happen in the absence of radiation? But um, I guess on a day-to-day -day basis, that that's not going to be um, an environment that, say, humans or, or other animals would, would, uh, would encounter. So how do you think this research would, add, or would it add to any kind of treatment or uh, cancer research or et cetera? Well, I think it's just gonna help <clears throat> um, extend our knowledge really of mm -hmm. low dose radiation. There's a lot of um, concern and uncertainty about what happens with these low levels, the low level exposures from diagnostic uh, imaging, say. Exactly. And so I think if we really have an understanding of what happens when you remove natural background, it can it can help to um, you know, extend our knowledge of, of these low dose exposures, and it's also background radiation is something that we've been exposed to. Um, biological systems have always been exposed to on Earth. Um, so by removing that, we can get an idea of, of adaption and how we've um, come to to live in the, in this this background radiation level. Yeah. And that that is a question we get asked a lot because people often when you do especially radiation-based research, people want to know the clinical applications, human health uh, applications, and the, because you're right, you know, most people don't live underground or spend a lot of time underground. Mm -hmm. Very recently I read an article that suggested that there's some importance behind this ultra-low radiation research in the context of going to Mars because the ionizing radiation environment on the surface of Mars is incredibly, incredibly high. So that there was some proposition that you might have to actually go underground into cave systems or underground on the surface in order to escape that, but that would put you into potentially a sub, in that context, natural background radiation environment. And then of course there's lots of research being done in space and on astronauts and on tissue models using particle accelerators and use, looking at space relevant ions because we do want to understand if we're going to yeah. go into space and we're going to travel through that environment, we do want to know what those effects are. But like what Chris said, it's also about expanding just that fundamental understanding of what happens at really low doses and stepping just to the other side of that when you go actually below. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Um, I don't know, are there any other topics that you guys would like to discuss? I'm like trying to see if I. Yeah, yeah it's just a, it's a really incredible opportunity in a really incredible location, and I think we all feel really fortunate to be able to be pursuing at various levels of our academic and professional careers yeah. our work in a place that is so truly unique and and really really remarkable. And I know I I never spend a day underground in the Snell Lab that I'm not excited. I might be tired coming back up at the end of the day, but it's always exciting. Actually, I did just think of something. So you mentioned that organism that is highly radio resistant. And when you took it into the environment where there was no background radiation, it became more susceptible, more sensitized to radiation. Uh, I wonder if somehow there was a way to like harness that, to, to use that to treat cancer. I mean, it, it's probably way out there, but there was, I think very recently, there was in that specific organism, these highly radio resistant, these organisms that for one reason or another have developed this extremely high resistance to radiation. Mm -hmm. They've gone in, 
because of modern molecular technology, they can elucidate what genes are driving or what molecular pathways are driving these high levels of resistance. And I know yes. some preliminary work is being done looking at potentially exploiting those genes in either a clinical application or at least at this fundamental level, utilizing those genes in transferring genes into different model systems and transferring that radio resistance, which of course could have potential mm -hmm. uh, human health applications. In the